Welcome back to another edition of the Pennsylvania Prisons and Parole Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Tarkowski. On today's show, we'll explore how the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections is responding to the opioid epidemic inside our facilities with the latest advancements in medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, as we welcome the department's statewide MAT coordinator, Steve Sychek. Thank you for joining us today. Can you start at the beginning and just tell us your background and how long have you been involved in the recovery space? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in clinical psychology. Um, my master's degree at, from Pepperdine University is in clinical psych, and my first clinical job was in 1992 down in Carlisle, a place called the Stevens Center, where I worked in a partial hospitalization unit, mainly very significant mental health problems. Um, and then after work, I did uh, part-time drug and alcohol outpatient counseling. I did 10 years in the private sector doing just clinical work. Um, came to the state in 2002. Um, from 2006 until 2016, I was with the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs. Started there doing quality assurance um, and then moved into being the director of the Division of Treatment Services. Okay, and you've been doing this for a while now. When did the conversation start to shift from thinking of substance use disorder as some kind of moral failing to maybe a disease or, or something that takes a, a medication approach to resolving? Was it somewhere around that opioid epidemic? Opiate addiction has been you know, around for obviously decades upon decades. Um, the opioid epidemic was very unique in that we had a situation where opiates are being prescribed in a manner that we've never really seen before. And the medical community was basically um, encouraged to treat pain management with opiate-based medications, whether that be Oxycontin, Vicodin, things like that. So when you know the, the death toll started to pile up, it started to get a lot of people's attention. And you know, unfortunately, it took thousands upon thousands and thousands more to get people to pay enough attention to realize that, we have what is likely an epidemic going on throughout the country. And how does medication-assisted treatment help with that? So medication-assisted treatment, or sometimes people refer to it as MOUD, medication for opiate use disorder. I like to really just call it pharmacotherapy. Uh, pharmacotherapy is... Um, if you have schizophrenia and you take a neuroleptic medication, um, that's pharmacotherapy. You have counseling services, um, and then you have the medication side of it. And the medication is there to really help stabilize the individual. And then once they're stabilized, then it's going to make the counseling part a lot easier to do because you're not going to be dealing with someone who is, you know, in withdrawal. You're not going to be having someone who is having massive cravings. So that medication is really going to help be that stabilizer so that when the counseling is occurring, that individual is much more capable of having conversation with that clinician 
and really try and get at you know what is going on deep within that person. Tell me a little bit about why it's so important to manage those withdrawal symptoms. So I think a lot of us that maybe have never experienced something like that before, we all we know is what we see on TV, right? Or we see in popular culture. And you see, oh, okay, the guy had an opioid problem, and then he had a really rough night to uh, get those shakes out of his system. And then the next day, he flushed the pills down the toilet, and he was all better. But that's not how it is in real life, right? What's a withdrawal like? So withdrawal from opiates is an incredibly painful process. Um, psychologically, it is very difficult. And physiologically, it's even more difficult. Um, you can get very, very sick. Um, suicidality is something that, you know, I bring up because when individuals are in deep withdrawal and they're very, very sick, that is a time where they're very vulnerable um, and they're going to be desperate to find their next high. And in today's um, world, that next high is likely going to be something that contains fentanyl. Um, and fentanyl is really what is pushing the opioid epidemic now. Um, prior, it was mainly heroin. Um, and, you know, then fentanyl started to show up. Um, carfentanyl started to show up as well. Carfentanyl is even... Um, much stronger than fentanyl. So once these adulterants at, um, were added to the heroin, it was making the, the heroin incredibly deadly. Now what we're finding is actually we're finding some folks that they only have fentanyl. So the heroin might not even be present. They are taking, at times, just simply pure fentanyl. Um, which is going to be deadly to the average individual, um, and it's going to happen very quickly, um, sometimes before an individual can even get the needle out of their arm, they'll be dead. Um, that's how fast it can occur. So what does medication-assisted treatment in the DOC look like? We have these incarcerated men and women. They arrive on our doorstep with these addictions, maybe undergo with these withdrawal symptoms, right? And it's their first day. Like, how do they get involved in the program? And then what's the first step? What's the halfway point? And then when are they done? So in the very beginning, back when I started in 2016, we were only offering uh, Vivitrol, which is injectable naltrexone. Um, and at that time, the only portion um, of their stay in the DOC that they would be eligible to receive Vivitrol was just before re-entry. Um, now Vivitrol is actually available to anyone within the DOC that has opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder. So Vivitrol, um, it's simply the active ingredient is naltrexone. When it's injected, the brand is called Vivitrol. We also have oral naltrexone. Sometimes the brand name is known as Revia. So inside the DOC, um, 
you'll have people that will um, want to be on the oral form and then some people would prefer the injectable form. So obviously the oral is taken daily and the injectable is taken on a monthly basis. So that was in the very beginning. So for several years, Vivitrol was really the only gig in town. Then in 2019, um, around June, was when we started offering buprenorphine. Um, and buprenorphine, most people know it by the brand name Suboxone. Um, so we started offering buprenorphine maintenance back in 2019 for individuals that were coming into the state system already on a valid prescription of buprenorphine. So you're taking, you know, buprenorphine out in, you know, the community, you might be in a county jail and you're receiving buprenorphine. Um, because you had a valid script, when you entered uh, DOC, we're going to maintain you. Um, one thing that we are not doing with buprenorphine is new induction. Um, now, Trexone, we do have new induction going on right now, um, but buprenorphine is right now only for maintenance for individuals that come in on a valid prescription. We also offer the injectable form of buprenorphine, which is a monthly injectable. So we have some folks that are taking oral, which is the Suboxone, or they're taking the injectable. It's a monthly injectable. Right now that is um, Sublicade, and um, soon there's going to be another injectable that's going to hit the market. So we'll see how that you know goes with that. Um, and our next expansion is likely going to be new induction of buprenorphine for those who are getting ready for re-entry. So if you go back to the beginning of when we did Vivitrol, we only made it available for those that were getting ready for re-entry. Well, that's what it's gonna kind of look like with the new induction on buprenorphine is, once we get to the point where we have the infrastructure to offer that, then we'll look at those individuals who have opioid use disorder, getting ready for re-entry and seeing about getting them on, you know, any form of MAT before they go back into the community. It's a lot of different names for treatment uh, options, a lot of different medications out there. But I think the, the general takeaway is everybody gets screened, right? When they come into the DOC, uh, what their medical needs are. And this is just like another part of the medical evaluation now, right? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, this has become very common in individuals that are coming into the DOC. We see it in the county jails and we're seeing it in the state prisons of individuals that are coming in because of opioid addiction. Many of them are, you know, doing crimes that are related to I need to get my next fix. I need to get um, you know, more opiates in the community, whether that's heroin or fentanyl or any other type of opiate. Um, and it's just a matter of people committing crimes to serve that addiction to find the money for their next fix or what's the, uh, what's the link there? Mainly it is. So the typical scenario is 
you know, if I was the individual, I'd be, you know, going over to my mother's house and, you know, secretly stealing things from my mother or from, you know, other family members, um, you know, taking it to a pawn shop just to be able to get some cash so that I can go out and purchase, you know, drugs on the black market, which is very easy to get. Um, and not only is it easy to get heroin and fentanyl, but it's also easy to get Suboxone out in the community uh, illegally. So people will, um, what's called diversion, they'll divert their medication and sell it to other people. But diversion is a very complicated issue. Um, diversion happens for very different reasons if you're in the community versus if you're inside the DOC. So for instance, in the community, if people are buying illicit Suboxone, it's almost always because they're trying to keep themselves from getting sick. So we were talking earlier um, about what it's like to go through opiate withdrawal. Because it's so painful and, and very difficult to handle, individuals will oftentimes seek out Suboxone in the black market, in the community, because they're basically doing what would be referred to as ambulatory detox, is you know having a medication that can be taken to keep them from getting sick. The reason that people divert Suboxone inside the jail are for generally completely different reasons. Usually that is to sell to individuals that would be what's called opiate naive. So I'm guessing that you're not on any opiate-based medication right now. Um, and in that situation, you're opiate naive. If you took an opiate, you would have a very quick reaction to it. Whereas I would have less of a reaction because I actually am taking an opiate-based medication in the morning and in the evening every single day. And I've been doing that for several years. It's like a tolerance thing, right? Building up tolerance. Absolutely. Tolerance is the big issue. So my tolerance is going to be much higher than your tolerance. So for me, I would need something stronger. For you, you would be fine with something that would be quote unquote weaker. Um, so buprenorphine, just to make sure everyone's on the same page, is what's called a partial agonist. Uh, methadone is what's considered a full agonist. So that can get very complicating and confusing to people, but a full agonist like methadone is going to have more punch to it, more power, more kick to it. It's going to be for those who have a very, very high tolerance for opiates. Um, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. It has a plateau effect. So there's only so much effect that you're going to get from buprenorphine versus if you were taking methadone. So I can visualize people in our audience hearing all these names and all the different uh, treatment options that are out there and saying, that's just too complicated. Why can't people just go cold turkey? Yeah. What do you say to them? 
Yeah, that, that's very, very difficult to do. And generally, um, it's been proven to not be the wise decision from a mortality standpoint. So the reason we have the death toll that we have right now is really because a lot of people are just trying to do, like you just said, let's just quit and go t- cold turkey. Um, you know, just deal with the detoxification process and, you know, kind of white knuckle it out. And that is just not the smart way of going about it, either physiologically or psychologically. Um, If it worked, more people would do it, right? Yeah, and less people would be dying, um, that's for sure. So medication has been shown... Um, in study after study after study for decades and decades to reduce mortality, to increase retention in treatment, and to get people to a point where they're able to live their life in a very normal manner while being on a form of pharmacotherapy. We take medicine for any number of things from high blood pressure on down the list, right? So why is there such a stigma to medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder? It's interesting because there's a lot of individuals that they don't even want to take Tylenol or Advil um, for anything. So there are some folks that, for whatever reason, they don't like the idea of taking medication. However... If you had to go get a surgery, um, I'm pretty sure you would want to be able to have morphine available. Um, So it's like going back to, you know, envisioning the Civil War when people used to get amputations done and they're just biting down on their leather belt. Morphine has done wonders in the medical community. And morphine is really the active ingredient that we're talking about here. It's just what what kind of a derivative are we talking about? So morphine in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is always, are we going to abuse morphine? Um, and how long are we going to abuse it? And how high will our tolerance get which is then going to make the withdrawals even that much deeper and tougher and more, much more painful. We're talking with Steve Sychek. He's the statewide MAT coordinator for the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, kind of exploring new ways of dealing with the opioid epidemic in our prisons and beyond. What does treatment look like for folks that are leaving the Department of Corrections? We don't just let them out at the door and say, good luck, right? We kind of have that warm handoff now. Why is that so important? Yeah, so continuity of care is incredibly important with this. People who are leaving corrections are at a much higher risk of overdose than the average you know, citizen. So there have been a lot of studies that have shown that individuals leaving jails and prisons are roughly 40 times more likely to have an overdose within the first two weeks um, of their release. So when someone leaves the DOC, they're leaving with their Medicaid number already being issued, 
They have an appointment already scheduled in the community for medication management, but also for counseling services. We make sure that the single county authority is involved with these referrals. So the warm handoff, you know, we like to call it more of a hot handoff because we have everything basically lined up so that the reentrant has the, you know, the ability to go out into the community and focus on their reentry needs and not focus on going into withdrawal or seeking out drugs because they're being you know maintained on their medication the counseling part is obviously a big part of this because you really need to combine the two it doesn't mean that you're going to be in counseling for the rest of your life but it just means that especially in the very beginning um, you want to combine both forms of treatment. That's why we say pharmacotherapy. It's, you know, we're not just doing, you know, pharmacology. It is combining a behavioral type treatment like cognitive behavioral um, therapy or CBT, a lot of people know it as. Um, so that warm handoff really is to try and keep people alive get them the help that they need and give them the ability to focus on their reentry rather than focus on Ill illicit drug use. We've talked a lot on this, on this show about the challenges folks have in reentry, everything from transportation to housing to medical needs. I imagine throwing addiction on top of that would uh, just add another layer that so many people don't think about. Everything you say makes so much sense but have you run into pushback? What's the difficulty of getting people to buy into something like MAT, maybe at the county level, at the state level, and beyond? So it's going to be different. Um, for Vivitrol, um, there was a little bit of pushback in the beginning, but then that kind of was much easier to deal with because it's a non-narcotic medication. Um, and because of that status, a lot of people in law enforcement um, would prefer a non-opiate-based treatment. The problem is, is that we have three FDA-approved medications to treat this disorder. We have methadone, we have buprenorphine, and we have naltrexone. I have seen people succeed on all three, and I've seen people fail on all three. What is going to work you know, say for you, Ryan, is going to be different maybe than what works for me. It's like with antidepressants. You know, one antidepressant may work for me, another antidepressant may work for you, and something completely different, you know, you know, for Kurt. It's, it's really going to be, has to be client specific. So when that individual is meeting with a physician all three FDA-approved meds should be looked at and then try and determine which one has a chance of succeeding. I'm currently taking a medication to lower my cholesterol. Now, this medication is the fourth different type of medication that I've taken for cholesterol. The first one I took didn't work very well. The second one I took, I remember it gave me a lot of aches and pains. The third one made me feel a little bit nauseous. 
Then the fourth one, it was, you know, just absolutely worked great. The numbers came down, everything, you know, started to look good, but it took me many, many months just to find what is the right medication for me. And with opiate use disorder, people really need to try and understand that naltrexone works for some people, buprenorphine works for others, methadone works for others as well. And it's not always going to be simple to find which one works best for you. That's a good way of putting it because so much of medicine is trial and error. Not, there's not always a instruction manual, X plus Y always equals Z, right? Everybody's a little bit different. Everybody responds a little bit differently. So just because one form of treatment doesn't work, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. You don't just say, oh, MAT isn't effective because one person relapsed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, with substance use disorders, as well as mental health um, disorders, you're going to have a lot of different types of medication that are going to work for some and not work for others. It's pretty much that way in, in a lot of types of disorders. Um, but, but it does work for so many people. I should have asked you this at the beginning. What kind, what percentage of folks in the DOC are on some form of MAT? So right now, I don't have the exact percentage, but we have, you know, in the mid 30,000 inmates across the state. Um, I have roughly uh, 350 inmates receiving injectable buprenorphine. I have, you know, somewhere in the 500s who are receiving oral buprenorphine. Then I have um, those receiving naltrexone, which is the last month I looked at, we were at maybe around 150 to 175 individuals each month receiving Vivitrol or oral naltrexone. Um, so I'm not sure what that percentage comes to, but the number of individuals that have been receiving treatment, those numbers have continued to grow since the inception of the program. Um, only in COVID times did those statistics go down a little bit for some obvious reasons. And what does a success story from MAT look like? I'm sure you get feedback from folks who uh, have, have been successful in this program. What are some of your favorite success stories? So we go into institutions on a fairly regular basis and we try and talk with those folks that are, you know, receiving um, naltrexone, receiving buprenorphine. Now methadone is not yet available in our male institutions, so we still only have methadone up at uh, SCI Cambridge Springs. But in talking with folks on both oral and injectable buprenorphine, as well as oral and injectable naltrexone, we see some of what I've been saying is some of the individuals um, that were on Vivitrol, um, they're now on a buprenorphine type product. Um, and sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes people who have been on buprenorphine in the past, they're now going to try naltrexone. So we have a lot of individuals that have been on both 
And like we've been saying, it's really going to be dependent on each person figuring out what works best for them. The thing I like about some of the success stories um, is that these individuals are clearly showing the benefits of pharmacotherapy. Um, You're going to see less problems inside from these individuals as far as misconducts. You know, there's going to be less um, probably percentage of them going into, you know, restricted housing. So we know that people um, are having good experiences and we know some people um, are, you know, it just for whatever reason doesn't really work for them and they'll focus more on just an abstinence-based approach Um, which, you know, it's really up to that person. What do they want? What do they need? Um, But we know that it's working. I've talked to many people to show that, but um, the stigma is still very strong. Talking about stigma, what advice do you have for somebody in the community who might have a loved one, maybe not incarcerated, they have a family member or a friend that has experienced substance use disorder or has an addiction to opiates, how can somebody support a loved one with this uh, sort of addiction? So I think one of the most important things is a lot of people have a fear that someone's going to have to take uh, medication for the rest of their life. Um, And I understand that's not ideal, but I currently am on roughly four medications that I'll be taking for the rest of my life. Not just one, not just two. I'm on four right now that unless something changes dramatically, I'm going to be on them for many, many years to come. I've already been on these medications for a couple decades. My quality of life is fine. It's really not that horrible to have to rely on medication. People do it every single day. If you're suffering from cancer, people are going to get treatment. Um, That has a lot less stigma associated with it, obviously, than substance use has. But I would say don't put pressure on the individual for coming off of their medication or what's called tapering them off of their medication. All of the science says the longer you're on treatment, the better the outcome. The longer you're in counseling, the better the outcome. So don't try and pressure anyone to taper off of their meds or to stop receiving treatment because if it has to be for the rest of their life, That's a lot better than the alternative, which is a fatal overdose. Sounds like you're saying it's a marathon, not a sprint. It is. I I like being the tortoise much more than being the hare these days. And I do agree that we have to look at this like it's a marathon. Now, Steve Sajek, you're responsible for medication-assisted treatment within the DOC, but you also do a lot of work with county facilities, right? Yeah, so we've been working with a lot of the county jails over the, the past several years, working with the County Commissioners Association of Pennsylvania, 
um, working with the single county authorities, um, as well as with PCCD, because they have a lot of grants that are available for those county jails to be able to implement uh, medication-assisted treatment within their facilities. So we also hold a monthly call with uh, the county jails just to try and you know go over topics that will help them implement these types of programs in their facilities. What is the one change that you would like to see or the one attitude towards substance use or anything else that would make your job easier as, as somebody that looks to support folks with substance use disorder? So a lot of people look at drug users and say, well, you know, they were the ones that decided to use the drug in the first place. So it's their fault. It, it, they created the problem themselves. Um, I think that's a very narrow-minded way of looking at it. And it's easy to get addicted to these types of illicit drugs. Um, it is it's a science, right? It's, it's chemicals. It's... In yeah. your body, it's not something that you can choose at that point. Yeah. You're, after you've become, you know, addicted, um, choice is, is a very odd word because even though we have free will, we are addicted psychologically and physiologically. And that becomes a very powerful duo. Thanks again to Steve Sychek for joining us today. The opioid epidemic has affected the lives of so many Pennsylvanians, so it's encouraging to see the DOC exploring new ways to help those suffering from substance use disorder. For more information on MAT and success stories from inside our institutions, follow us on social media at CorrectionsPA on Facebook and Twitter. On behalf of executive producer Kurt Bope, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan Tarkowski. Until next time. 